Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to this LSE Public Event hosted by the Department of Economic History um, in association with the Economic History Advisory Board. Um, so today we are going to discuss with a panel of world experts what the history of finance can teach us about current issues regarding public debts in the new COVID-19 era. My name is Olivier Cominotti, and I am a professor at the LSE Economic History Department. Uh, this department brings together a wide range of economists, historians, and social scientists. And it is one of the world's uh, leading research hub in economic history. Uh, and of course, we have strong expertise in several areas of economic history. One of them is the history of finance, a field which has experienced considerable growth um, over the last decade. Indeed, uh, over the last uh, 20, uh, 15 to 20 years, the world economy has been shaken by a series of unprecedented economic and financial crises, which have contributed to a complete reshuffle of the global financial order. And these events have also renewed interest in economic and financial history as uh, policymakers, analysts, um, and stakeholders have looked into past events in order to find responses to the new questions which they struggle to analyze with conventional theoretical or empirical tools. Um, the LSE, of course, has been part of this intellectual development. And to respond to this new interest, uh, we are planning to expand in this area over the next few years. In September 2022, we will launch a new master's program in financial history. Um, and students, as part of this program, will have the, the opportunity to take courses in both finance and financial and economic history. Um, and this program will uh, train students to analyze financial systems and policies through a historical and interdisciplinary approach, which will borrow from a broad range of social sciences. And I think today's events uh, perfectly illustrate this approach. During the panel uh, event, we will discuss how the history of finance can be useful to think about one of the most controversial topics in today's global economy, uh, namely uh, the management of high public debts. The 2008 global financial crisis and the COVID-19 crisis are these once in a century events uh, which have led to major shifts in fiscal and monetary policy. During the 2008 crisis and its aftermath, uh, central banks have relied on creative methods, which we have come to call non-conventional policies, to uh, prevent the breakdown of the global financial system and of the economy, 
at the same time, governments have engaged in fiscal stimulus to support economic activity. So these responses looked unparalleled at the time. However, they have since been outsized and outpaced by many times by the public authorities in response to the shock of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, and governments' interventions in the economy have led to an explosion in public debts across uh, both advanced and emerging market economies. Uh, today, global public debt stands at almost 100% of global GDP. And a large share of the new public debt, which has been issued, especially in advanced economies during the pandemic, has been bought by central banks. And this situation, of course, has triggered concerns about the sustainability of these public debts, about the risks of inflation, and about the independence of central banks from governments. And just as we are talking, uh, they are in, there's in fact a lot going on on, uh, on government debt markets. Investors uh, were uncertain about whether uh, the higher inflation we are observing uh, is just a transitory phenomenon or a permanent one. Uh, and uh, they are also concerned about how central banks will react to this uh, increase in inflation in the coming months. As a consequence, the yields and short-term government bonds in the US, in the UK, in Canada, in Australia have increased uh, suddenly in the last week. And also um, we've seen a rise in uh, the long-term yield on Italian government bonds, which of course uh, triggers uh, worries about a return of the Euro uh, crisis. So there is much uncertainty about these issues. And in this context, turning back to history can be helpful as um, it allows identifying relevant episodes of the past that can help us think about the challenges of the new era we live in. Um, to what extent is the global public debt situation unprecedented? Have we experienced other periods of high public debts in history. How have governments and central banks in the past dealt with such high levels of public debts? And what have been the costs, as well as the broader economic, political, and social consequences? So to discuss these questions, uh, we today have the chance to have an exceptional panel of uh, experts in public debt issues and financial history. Uh, our first speaker is uh, Professor Carmen Reynolds. Carmen is Chief Economist and Vice President of the World Bank Group. And she is also on leave from Harvard Kennedy School, where she is the Minos Zambanakis Professor of the International Financial System. Her 2009 book, together with Ken Rogoff, uh, entitled This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly, is probably the most widely read book in economic and financial history. The book provides invaluable perspectives um, on the similarities and differences between various episodes of credit booms and financial crises across history. 
and it has been highly influential in academia, but also in the policy world and in the in the private sector. Um, our second speaker is um, Professor Graciela Kaminsky. Graciela is a professor of economics and international affairs at George Washington University's Elliott School of Public Policy. And she's one of the leading experts on financial crises in emerging markets, in particular, her empirical work on emerging market financial crises and capital flows in Latin America since the 19th century has been very influential, including on my own research on the global financial crisis of the 1930s. So I'm very pleased that Graciela could join us uh, today. And finally, our third speaker is Professor Thomas Sargent. Tom is William Berkeley Professor of Economics and Business at New York University's Stern School of Business one of the most influential and widely cited economists in the world and was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2011 for his empirical research on cause and effect in the macroeconomy. Um, you know, especially his work on rational expectations has contributed to reshape macroeconomic theory as well as our understanding of the effects of monetary and fiscal policy. But Tom has also applied rational expectations theory to major historical episodes. For example, his application of the theory to the German hyperinflation and to the end of the hyperinflation is a classic study which has been part of LSE course reading list for years as it profoundly changed the way economic historians think about this episode. So it is a, a, a big pleasure to have uh, these three distinguished speakers on the panel today. And before we get into the discussion, let me say a few words about the practical organization of this event. So first of all, each speaker will make a short presentation of about eight to 10 minutes discussing what various episodes of financial history can teach us about today's policy challenges regarding public debts. And then we will have a discussion together and the audience, of course, will have a chance to ask questions. So if you have any questions, please put them in the Q&A together with your name and affiliation, as we are especially keen to get questions from our students and alumni. Uh, so I will be able to see the questions and then I will uh, communicate them to our speakers. Uh, for those of you who are on Twitter, the hashtag for this event is LSC post-COVID, and this event can also be followed on Facebook live stream. It is also recorded and will be available as a podcast. Right. So that's it for the practical details. And I am now delighted to leave the floor to Carmen Reynard, who will talk first about insights of financial history for today's public debt issues. So Carmen, over to you. Uh, thank you, Olivier, um, and hello to everyone. Uh, so before I speak to the issue of historic similarities or differences with the current situation, I think let me just take a couple of minutes to review, and I'll make references to how this fits into 
historic context, how uh, public debt has been reduced in the past. What is the menu of options? I think it's a useful starting point to organize some of my thoughts. Um, and first and foremost, I guess, when you have high debt to GDP, uh, the, the first option, which is not really a policy per se, is you grow your way out of it. Um, that is, of course, you know, the highly desirable that organically debt to GDP goes down as, as uh, the denominator, uh, you know, does better than the numerator. In other words, you know, this is, I think, possibly the least controversial uh, way of, of reducing the debt. Unfortunately, um, you know, during periods of extended high indebtedness, uh, are seldom accompanied by very vibrant and sustained growth. So, and besides growth is something that policymakers aspire to, but it's really difficult to see growth as a policy. So what are the tools? Well, the first one is the very orthodox tool of belt tightening, now called off in austerity, but basically you reduce expenditures, or you increase taxes, you uh, um, sufficiently uh, do this consistently so as to uh, uh, reduce uh, the debt to GDP level over time. Um, you know, in none of these uh, approaches that I discuss, there are silver bullets, and I will go back to uh, I will go back to historic context on this uh, and how some of these policies were used. So, so belt tightening, austerity, whatever you want to call it, fiscal discipline, uh, consistently applied. This is not about a one year off, not not for high debt levels. The the remaining menu of options are somewhat less orthodox but nonetheless widely used. One is um, the use of the inflation tax. Uh, the central bank buys the government debt. The central bank monetizes the debt. Ultimately, inflation goes up. And if it is domestic currency debt, uh, inflation, especially, but not exclusively, especially unanticipated inflation will erode uh, the nominal value of the debt stock. Uh, inflation, first and foremost, has to be remembered, is a tax. Um, so it is not a tax administered by the fiscal authorities. It is a tax administered by the central bank. So it is a taxation without representation. Um, and, and I would note that it, it, it is a regressive tax uh, at that, but we can discuss that later. So inflation has been also a feature of, and I highlight domestic currency, right? Because this is not an option to reduce external debt that is in a foreign currency. Then uh, one that I've written, I'm, on, I'm still on the menu, but uh, one that I've written quite a bit on, which is financial repression. I will go back to, to reference that 
this was fairly widely used. I mean, financial repression historically has often been associated with emerging markets, but in effect, under the Bretton Woods system uh, at the end of World War II, uh, you had all manner of interest rate ceilings, capital controls, highly, very tightly regulated financial markets, a very large footprint of the central bank in uh, financial markets. So those are the very pillars of financial repression. And what can financial de- repression deliver? Usually, financial the aim of financial repression is to deliver uh, negative uh, ex post real interest rates, which uh, is negative ex post real interest rates deliver a transfer from uh, borrowers, from savers to borrowers. Uh, it is a tax, also a tax on bondholders or more broadly a tax on savers. And this, this was, you know, de facto in the 50s and, and 60s, a, a yet another method less widely known than austerity and overall inflation, but nonetheless, another method of, of, of debt reduction. Uh, and last and certainly not least, especially as you mentioned, uh, Olivier, emerging markets is debt restructuring. Uh, and debt restructuring can be used and has been used in effect most of the debt reduction episodes since World War II in emerging markets have involved uh, debt restructuring. Uh, and this is uh, can you can do debt restructuring on domestic debt that is done. It is less frequent, but nonetheless, there are domestic debt restructurings and domestic uh, and external, the more famous external debt restructuring, uh, which basically can take the form of writing off uh, part of nominal debt. It can take the form of extending maturities and reducing interest rates. Uh, but the bottom line is that there is a haircut. Uh, a write-off of uh, some magnitude in the uh, uh, present value of 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 of, of debt, uh, and so that is also a tax, uh, and the tax this time falls on the creditors. Um, so, um, having said that, where are we now in terms of? Uh, historic context, well, if you just look at the debt numbers, I'm not making broad brush comparisons, but if you look at the debt numbers for the advanced economies, uh, the the debt levels, public debt levels are very similar to those at the end of World War II. But let me say that is really a very narrow view of the subject because at the end of World War II, public debt was the only game in town. Private debts had been really wiped out largely through the, the, during the Depression and also during World War II. So public debt was the whole nine yards. Uh, now we have record levels of private debt, ostensibly a big chunk of that 
uh, is a contingent liability potentially for, 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 for the government. So, so the level of indebtedness at the moment really is much more than what the seeming comparison to the end of World War II would suggest. Furthermore, at the end of World War II, the pension system was very limited. Now it's much more significant. So bottom line, there's a lot of off-balance sheet that isn't taken into account. That's advanced economies. And I'll conclude by saying that for emerging markets, the end of World War II is not a particularly compelling uh, point of comparison. For emerging markets, what we're really seeing, and this is not seat of the pants, you actually do, do when you do the aggregation for external debt uh, and public sector debt, what you see is something closer to what you had at the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, which of course ushered in the debt crisis of the 1980s. Now, does that mean that we are, you know, in, in, in expecting just on the basis of debt levels uh, in emerging markets uh, another round of the 1980s? I'm not suggesting that, okay? I'm not suggesting that for the following reason. At the, at the time in which Paul Volcker, in October of 79, tightened monetary policy in the U.S., U.S. inflation was 14%, and real interest rates jumped to the highest level since the 1930s. This, of course, was a major external shock uh, that hit the uh, borrowing countries, the debtor countries. The odds of a, a tightening of that scale uh, by central banks in the current environment is not something I attach a high probability to. However, despite the fact that I do think the uh, uh, external, uh, the likelihood of a very adverse, very, very adverse external shock is unlikely, I do think the risks in emerging market at the end of COVID now have multiplied dramatically. And among low income countries, it is not a hypothetical. Whether the Fed raises rates, keeps it the same, or decides to lower them, they're already in debt distress, many of them. If you take the 73 low-income low countries that make up the debt service uh, suspension initiative, uh, more than half of them are already either in debt distress or at high risk of debt distress. So I'll conclude by saying for many low-income countries, they're the, really right now the canary in the coal mine. They, they're already in debt distress. Uh, many emerging markets are in much riskier waters than they had been for a very long time. And advanced economies have more rope, but are also in riskier territory. And, you know, do not confuse the fact that uh, public debt levels today look a lot like they did at the end of the war because the private debt issue and the pension funds and the contingent liability dimension is, is on a different scale altogether. And let me stop there. Thank you so much, uh, Carmen, for these uh, remarks. Um, you know, I, I really like the classification of the different options uh, that governments have to, to reduce public debts. Um, I was thinking 
that uh, the options that uh, governments eventually choose very much depend on the political context and the political economy, right? So there is, uh, you know, you mentioned um, uh, belt tightening and fiscal austerity as a, as a possibility. Um, there is at least one country in history which managed to reduce its public debts through fiscal adjustments, and this is the UK uh, in the 19th century. Following the Napoleonic Wars, the UK debt level stood at around 200% of GDP, and then you had decades of uh, primary fiscal surpluses in the UK, which eventually uh, managed uh, to bring the uh, debt back to about 30% of GDP on the eve of, of World War I, right? So that, that worked. We don't you know, tell much about the cost of that policy. Uh, at the same time, you also have uh, you know, recent experiences which uh, seem to be unsuccessful. I'm thinking of Italy, for example, which has run primary fiscal surpluses uh, since the, the mid-1990s and has not managed to, to reduce its public debt, right? So, you know, I'm just thinking, what has changed here? And is it, you know, possible given the uh, political context and the political economy that, um, that governments uh, uh, do what the UK did in the 19th century and engage in long periods of primary fiscal surpluses? Or is that not an option anymore? I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Um, my own sense is that the odds of anything resembling uh, what the UK did in the 19th century are, are, are limited. I would observe, make a couple of observations on the debt reduction by the UK. One is it was, it was, it was very gradual. It was very gradual. Uh, if you look at debt reduction, uh, it took uh, almost a century from the Napoleonic Wars to World War I. It was, it was gradual. Uh, secondly, they had help. They had colonies. Uh, and there were significant uh, treasure transfers from India uh, to the UK. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I would not underplay that. They're very different. And, and third, I would say when a good chunk of that period, you have the gold standard, the issue of uh, financing through uh, large uh, purchases by the bank, uh, central banks, uh, in other words, monetization, wasn't an option the way it is today. I, 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 so I don't attach. Um, the, the political economy issues that you raise are extremely important. Uh, and I would note that you don't have to look at the 19th century in the UK. At the end of World War II, the United States also tightened its belt significantly uh, for an extended period of time. It was, I would argue, in the context of the political economy, much easier to do then than it is now. Importantly, uh, if you look at, at expenditure, a large share of expenditures were discretionary. Many of them were related to the war. In other words, expenditure had a much more reversible component. 
than it is today when it's dominated by transfers, um, which are much more sensitive, much more difficult to reduce. So I do think that if uh, budget balancing is attempted, my expectation is that it will have a very active revenue component uh, since uh, unlike at the end of World War II, uh, there is a much stickier uh, dimension to, to, to the expenditure side. But I'll conclude by saying that I also um, would argue that since 2008, 2009, and I wrote the papers on financial repression with Valence Brancia in 2010-11, uh, that um, the um, uh, financial repression, in other words, interest rates that are below what otherwise would have prevailed uh, have been a contributor, not we can't really say to debt reduction, but to keeping uh, interest burdens below what they would have been uh, and therefore, uh, um, you know, they played a role, not a dominant role, but they've already been playing a role and I think they will continue to play a role and uh, uh, we'll also see about inflation. You mentioned Italy and I'll stop there. Uh, never rule out debt restructuring. Okay, uh, in 2010, uh, before the Greek debt restructuring, I, I had highlighted at that time uh, that, you know, debt restructuring was also something pre-World pre War II that advanced economies did. Uh, not as frequently, perhaps, as some of the emerging markets, but debt restructuring was certainly not unheard of in the 19th century. And um, when other options become more limited, uh, one has to uh, one has to look at the whole menu. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and, and so you you mentioned uh, the fact that financial repression leads to negative real interest rates, and of course we live in a world where real interest rates have been negative in many countries for several years. Um, so would you characterize the period we live in as a period of financial repression in advanced economies? Um, or, or do these negative real interest rates have other causes, right? One cause could be just risk aversion, the fact that there is a shortage of safe assets. So a, a huge demand for, um, for um, um, advanced economies, uh, governments, uh, bonds, uh, which uh, also drive real interest rates uh, on government debt down, or you know, is it linked to uh, banking regulation? And can we distinguish between banking regulation and, and financial repression? So, what are your thoughts here about you know the the the, the difference in the causes of um, of uh, real interest rates being negative? today versus um, after the Second World War? So I would uh, first and foremost have to say that the idea of, of that the exceptionally low 
and exceptionally long extended periods. This is a departure from history um, on, in order of magnitude and persistence of negative real interest rates uh, collectively in the advanced economies. Um, it would be difficult to argue that this is all about financial repression. Um, you know, I think the productivity issues, um, the balance, you know, we had it, the issue of shortage of assets, it's, you know, safe assets. It's, I, I, I'm not ready to embrace that quite in that form. I, I, I mean, you, you had in the early to, since the early 2000s, the growth of China and the, their huge purchases of U.S. securities uh, with very large saving rates. You know, so I, I would characterize it as as something that you know is is importantly connected to that. But clearly, you know, demographics. There's a lot of other factors one can list on why rates are are are, are low. However, it cannot be denied that if you look at, and happy to share the data, I presented this at the Carl Bruner lecture uh, last month. Uh, if you look at government security holdings across the advanced economies, across each uh, uh, advanced economy, um, central bank holdings and government securities take a big ratchet up in 2000, around the 2008-2009 crisis. They never re-normalize. Uh, they take an even bigger ratchet up during the COVID crisis. Um, the footprint of central banks is at, on a scale that I have not I am not familiar with in peacetime. Maybe, you know, I stand to be corrected, but I'm not familiar with such a large scale footprint. Financial uh, repression is not just, not just about uh, uh, the size of the balance sheet of the central bank and, and, and the role, but it's also importantly connected to regulation. So to your very insightful question of, can we separate financial repression from regulation? The answer is usually no, it's very difficult. Uh, and what we also saw at the end of 2008, 2009 uh, is a, a variety of policies across the advanced economies that uh, required or induced financial institutions to buy more government securities, to hold larger shares of government securities, which of course, in the old jar jargon of financial repression is, it's great to create captive audiences. Um, so, you know, but, but all I'm saying is, while many other factors have influenced where we are in, in real interest rates, monetary policy and regulatory policy under the unintended umbrella of financial repression or unlabeled umbrella of financial repression has played, I think, to this day, a very important role. Good, thank you, thank you. That's very insightful. Um, so I'm gonna hand it over to Graciela. I'm, I'm sure we'll have more questions about this uh, issue of financial repression um, in the Q and A. Um, for now, I'm gonna hand it over to uh, Graciela, um, who I think uh, will talk about the. Um, uh, sovereign debt crisis uh, of uh, 1825 in Latin America and uh, 
countries. So please um, go ahead, uh, Graciela, thanks. Okay. Um, today I'm going to expand a little bit what I told Olivier uh, of uh, the current the crisis that I was going to be looking at. And um, when you look at Latin America, uh, you can extend over 200 years and have a plethora of uh, financial crises. I'm just going to focus uh, on two of them, and then I would like to look at the issue of uh, what is happening now uh, with COVID-19 and Latin American countries and what it tells us, uh, what happened before, uh, how different factors are going to perhaps replay. Uh, Okay, um, so uh, Latin America started to participate in international capital markets early on uh, in the 19th century after uh, getting independence from um, the Iberican countries. Um, Latin America opened up to, uh, to trade, to international trade, and also started to participate in international capital markets. Um, so I'm going to talk about the first episode of crisis in Latin America that occurred uh, in the 1820s. And uh, this uh, crisis was preceded by an international capital flow bonanza uh, with uh, London at, uh, at the epicenter of uh, of uh, financial uh, issues. Um, so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, that this bonanza ended with uh, the 1825 uh, London panic and this crisis spread uh, to uh, Europe and Latin America. Um, we are going to see that at the end of uh, this crisis, uh, uh, well, first the countries defaulted and uh, there were um, a dramatic reduction uh, of the debt that occurred uh, at the end of all these uh, defaults. Uh, the next uh, crisis that I'm going to look, although um, we have many crises in between, um, uh, is uh, the uh, 1980s crisis. Again, it occurred during a period of um, financial globalization. Um, again, this crisis has some similarity with uh, the 1820 uh, crisis in Latin America. And it was also preceded by uh, a bonanza in international capital flows, this time with the United States at uh, its epicenter. Um, this bonanza lasted from the mid-1970s to uh, the early 1980s. And as uh, Carmen mentioned, uh, this uh, bonanza enter, uh, ended with uh, the Volcker shock when interest rates uh, sharply increased to the two dishes in the United States 
And this triggered a really bad shock uh, to uh, emerging markets, to debtor economies, because at that time, uh, the instruments that were being used were syndicated loans, and syndicated loans uh, had a floating interest rate. And when the interest rates um, in the United States uh, increased uh, dramatically, uh, the cost uh, of uh, previous loans and uh, new loans uh, was uh, dramatic and uh, Latin American countries uh, had to uh, default. Um, as Latin American countries defaulted, uh, this affected too uh, the banking sector uh, in the United States, not the banking sector as a whole, but the large commercial uh, banking uh, uh, banks, and uh, these uh, that were heavily um, invested in Latin America when these countries defaulted, uh, there was a problem, a large fragility uh, in the in the banking sector. Um, so. Uh, lending completely disappeared um, and the crisis spread to um, most developing economies. And again, we see another episode of uh, large defaults. So I would like to look a little bit at these two uh, episodes of crisis. And I'm going to look at uh, COVID-19 um, and uh, Latin American fragilities. This is a different type of crisis. This crisis um, in Latin America and in the rest of the countries was not preceded by a capital flow bonanza. Nonetheless, uh, we have lots of fragilities. Um, Latin America was one of the regions that suffered the most with COVID-19 in 2020. And these triggers, okay, um, new policies, policies are adopted. Um, we are interested in looking at um, how uh, COVID-19 affected uh, the financial fragility of all these countries and what we can assess going now uh, forward. So I would like to look a little bit similarities and differences. Okay, um, so let me talk uh, a little bit about uh, the 1820s. Um, the 1820s, as Carmen was saying, um, was, um, was the beginning of uh, financial globalization. Uh, we have the war, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, lots of fiscal expenses across all the belligerent countries. Um, and as a result, when the war ended, okay, there were lots of savings uh, to make. Uh, and as you mentioned, there has been uh, a reduction of the debt of England uh, ever since uh, until, and that uh, lasted this uh, decline in, uh, in, go in government debt uh, that, as Carmen mentions, uh, lasted for a long period of time. Um, of course, when um, there is no demand for um, borrowing, um, interest rates, uh, the returns start uh, to decline and uh, investors start to look for higher returns elsewhere. Um, um, and we have higher returns elsewhere in, a, in an area of the world 
that got independence and uh, the expectations were that they were going to be higher returns because of commodities and uh, other issues. So uh, what you see uh, following the collapse of the Napoleonic Wars is that investors in the financial centers uh, started for, to search for uh, very high returns and then they start investing among other uh, countries in Latin American countries. And there was a need in uh, Latin America uh, to borrow. Um, uh, you have to develop the country, but most of it, uh, all the countries in Latin America were in the war of independence vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Spain. And uh, the possibility of tapping international capital markets was very attractive. And uh, let me show you, um, when you are looking at the increase in external debt uh, in Latin America, is mostly increase in public debt. Uh, there were investments in mines, et cetera, uh, with uh, the ventures uh, being issued, but the largest portion was the increase in public debt uh, starting from uh, 1821, when Colombia, Gran Colombia was the first to um, start up in international capital markets until 1825 when uh, the panic in London uh, burst. Um, it's interesting to see that the numbers of um, leverage that these countries accumulated was uh, quite high. So here you have the increase uh, in debt uh, from going from uh, 1821 uh, to 1825. And you can see that um, the, um, I'm using exports because at that time we didn't have any data on uh, GDP, but you, have an, uh, 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 you can still grasp uh, how heavy, uh, heavily indebted these countries um, beca became. For example, Colombia uh, borrowed uh, in, in the increase in debt uh, relative to exports was about uh, six times, okay? Um, in the case of uh, Mexico, uh, the increase in debt relative to exports was uh, four times, uh, similarly to Peru. And even the countries that borrow the less, um, basically uh, the debt over exports uh, was 200% of uh, exports, uh, twice uh, the level of exports. So these countries were um, uh, dramatically, uh, the, 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 the leverage of these countries increased uh, dramatically. Um, of course, all the countries uh, defaulted. Um, the, the London panic spread not just to Latin America, but also to, uh, to Europe. And um, the following 10 years, uh, international liquidity uh, disappeared. Okay. Um, so the, there was a collapse in economic activity uh, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, the demand for the products produced by Latin American countries declined and the terms of trade deteriorated dramatically. 
And you can see here in the uh, chart um, on the left that um, the years following uh, this uh, crisis were an, a long uh, episode, a protracted episode of um, decline in economic activity. So what you have in, uh, in this graph on the left, in the bottom, uh, is the growth of uh, or the growth of exports relative to the normal times. And what you can see here is that after the uh, defaults and overall declining economic activity in the rest of the world, um, the uh, growth of the economy slowed down dramatically. Only in the 1840s, 1850s, economic activity started to surge. So all these, um, these type of episodes have long lasting um, uh, effects. Um, the ability of uh, the governments at that time to do uh, expansionary fiscal policy like many countries are doing right now, and monetary policy was out of the question. Um, during the uh, 19th century, we were in the, in the gold standard. The ability to uh, print money was not there. Although if you see in here, when you're looking at Argentina, uh, Argentina was in, not in the gold standard at that time. Uh, the peso was continuously depreciating. And inflation, not to the, um, to the levels that we are going to see in the 1980s, but the average level of inflation in, Latin, in Argentina was about, during these 30 years, uh, was about uh, almost 6% per year. The rest of the countries, you can see that mostly they have a deflation uh, during uh, these uh, 30 years. Um, so one issue that we can discuss is what could have happened if these countries have some legal uh, fiscal space and they could uh, issue, uh, um, have an easy monetary policy. Okay, um, going now uh, to the second episode of financial globalization that Carmen mentioned before. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, the Bretton Woods system collapsed. Um, and so countries could uh, close their exchange rates have independent monetary policy uh, and, and without the need of having capital control. And so most of the countries started first from the, the developed countries and then by Latin America, uh, capital controls were abandoned. Okay, this episode was preceded by the old shock. Okay, and financial globalization um, allowed to reallocate uh, the savings of some countries and they were, um, they ended in uh, deposits in the US banks that then recycled uh, th that, uh, those uh, deposits uh, to emerging economies. Um, again, what we have is in this, uh, in the, the years before the crisis, what we observe also is a capital flow uh, bonanza. Again, what you can see here in the top uh, um, chart is the increasing debt um, uh, over exports, the external debt over exports, I'm not looking at the domestic debt, was quite substantial uh, too. 
And no wonder uh, was Mexico the first uh, to have uh, problems because the accumulation of debt, of public debt at that time, um, rose to about 250% of uh, total exports. Um, other countries too, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile also uh, had um, uh, increased their debt at the, uh, the burden, the international burden after this uh, crisis. Um, the, with economic activity, uh, with uh, the debt increasing, with uh, interest rates uh, dramatically increasing um, in Latin America, this led to uh, a collapse in economic activity uh, in Latin America. This was much more dramatic than the collapse in economic activity that we observed uh, in the 1820s. Um, the, um, the countries uh, close up, um, they introduce uh, controls, um, they, uh, and the fiscal policy became quite uh, ex expansionary. And without capital controls, uh, the countries uh, in Latin America um, use uh, is monetary policy. And this led during the 1980s to, in many countries, hyperinflation, like the case of uh, Brazil, Argentina, and Peru, in which the average inflation was about between 300 and 500% per year from 1981-1993. But in general, even though in Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and Uruguay, the rate of inflation was much uh, smaller. Still, what we observe, okay, that inflation was uh, was uh, quite high. And as Carmen was mentioning, this is a big tax on uh, developing countries, and it really a very high tax on uh, on low income um, households. And so this created uh, a lot of uh, poverty in uh, Latin America. Um, so this period was a period of high inflation. Capital controls uh, hurt uh, the economy because there were no restrictions on the fiscal and monetary policy that these countries were following. At the same time, what was going on was the restructuring uh, of the debt and uh, until the restructuring was um, finally um, reached, uh, these countries were uh, had uh, to pay to, in, there was increasing in interest rates and so they had to pay more and uh, this even hurt uh, Latin American countries. Um, at the end, as you all know, uh, there was um, the restructuring and countries uh, got about 30% um, uh, decline, uh, short um, haircuts. Uh, COVID uh, really had a, a really adverse effect on economic activity. It was the area of the world that collapsed the most, okay? Um, so now, um, government uh, and the monetary authority um, try to, with more fiscal space than they had in previous years, 
uh, wanted to um, to uh, reduce or to incentivate economic activity. And what you have here is that the government borrowing uh, increased dramatically. This includes borrowing abroad and a borrowing uh, from banks and from the central bank. And so um, monetary and fiscal policy was much more uh, um, smaller uh, in the 1990s and uh, the early uh, 2000s. In 2020, this increased dramatically. So uh, it's something that we started from a short, uh, a low um, debt over GDP ratio, but now the government has increased fragilities and money growth uh, has increased too. Uh, one issue that is important too is that part of this borrowing of the government is from borrowing from banks. If you look at uh, 2019, most of the borrowing in those uh, countries was uh, from the, uh, the private sector, uh, the blue uh, bars, whereas the central government was not borrowing as much from domestic banks. This changed dramatically in 2020, in which you see that there is a, a kind of uh, crowding out effect uh, from the government to the private sector when you're looking at lending from the banking sector. So this is just the, what I would like to say. So we had a, a very dramatic effect of uh, COVID-19 uh, in, uh, in 2020. Um, the economies collapsed. The governments around Latin America tried to use their fiscal space and have a more expansionary monetary policy. Um, this uh, might have, um, and most of the uh, borrowing of the, uh, of the government was uh, from banks. This reduced the ability of the private sector to borrow from the banking sector. And the increase in debt um, increased uh, the sovereign uh, risk uh, of the governments. And what you can see when you look at, um, at um, the ratings of these countries uh, have uh, declined uh, sharply. Um, so what we need to see, and now we have a problem that we didn't have a bonanza before, but now there is a borrowing, and um, there is um, much borrowing from the private sector. And so now we can have a problem from the government that is borrowing both from the uh, banks and from the rest of the world. And um, uh, this can lead to a downgrade of these uh, countries, and it could put, put in, in peril the, um, the uh, banks, uh, the domestic banks. So this could lead uh, to uh, more contractions uh, that could be more severe and protracted. So thank you for uh, letting me finish. Thank you. Thank you so much, Graciela. That was, uh, that was very, uh, very interesting. And, you know, sorry to be, uh, to be rushing you, but uh, we would uh, like to hear uh, Tom as well. Um, and, um, and we have the time constraints, right? Uh, so I'm going to hand it over to Tom um, yeah. now, and then we, I'm sure we'll have questions about your presentation as well in the, in the following discussion. So Tom, over to you. Yeah, as I mentioned to you, um, I, I was planning on the time restraints being uh, respected. 
but um, so I do have to go to a, I have to go to a class. So, um, so let me, let me just tell you what, what I, what I was going to talk about. And it's kind of better. I'll, I'll put this up on my, on my webpage uh, within a week. Um, so, so what we're kind of pursuing the, the, the same themes that uh, Carmen especially was talking about um, um, in a, in a, more restricted domain. We have this, George, my friend George and I have this paper, Three World Wars, looking at uh, fiscal monetary consequences. It's a provincial American point of view. And um, and we're just going to look, the, here's the Three World Wars. I'll show you some pictures. Okay. Uh, we kind of do a consolidated government budget constraint. Uh, we, do, we do some measurement uh, correctly. And the Three World Wars, uh, uh, lots of similarity with respect to the monetary and fiscal things. Here's World War One, World War Two, and here's COVID. Look at these, and we look at these numbers. The the red are tax collections, the blues are expenditures. Think of a Barrow tax moving model. This is what we look at. We talk about how to measure these things. Kind of give you a reader's guide. This paper. We give some we give some pictures. Um, there's the primary deficit. That's kind of what. In the, in the U.S., kind of look at the patterns. What pops out at you is, yeah, so the beginning, COVID starting to look like World War I and World War II. One thing that you see, if you stare at this graph, what you'd see was uh, wartime during ex expenditures uh, 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 rose um, a lot, but then they, they, they stayed higher permanently relative to their pre-war level. Same thing in World War I, World War II. Look at look what, how expenditures, there was a permanent rise in expenditures due to some of the forces Carmen was talking about. What's going to happen after COVID-19? Your guess is as good as mine. Um, here's the primary deficit. Here's a reader's guide. Then we spend a lot of time looking at who owns this debt. There's a picture for you. You can find it on my webpage. Then we do uh, who owned the treasury, who owned these treasury debt. And then finally, we show you a bunch of Fed balance sheets. Um, I'm kind of a Fed guy. You kind of stare at these and... Um, and um, stare at this. We could stare at this for an hour. Um, and then finally, um, finally, here's here's a graph of the of the of the market value of U.S. debt. This stuff here at the end. Uh, things got complicated when the United States government, when the Fed starts paying interest on reserves. When it starts paying interest on reserves, um, uh, excess reserves look like interest-bearing government debt. So how should it be accounted for? And we do some corrections. And then it kind of, I'll, I'll kind of conclude here, goes back to issues at the beginning of the founding of the Fed. Part of what the debt, the, the Fed has done with these excess reserves is it's bought treasuries, but part it's bought, you know, real bills. It's bought private securities, Adam Smith's real bills. And that should be accounted for differently. And then finally, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of tell you a big criticism of our paper. We look at everything through a consolidated government budget constraint. Um, but really, in this day of excess reserves, should you be doing that? Um, should you deconsolidate and have a budget constraint for the central bank and for a separate one for the fiscal authorities and explicitly model their payments? And this is a big issue now in the, um, in the, in the euro area. Marco Bassetto has a co-author has a paper called uh, 40 budget constraints, not one consolidated for the Euro area. So um, in the interest of time and, and where I have to be five minutes ago, I'm just going to stop now. So thanks. This is a wonderful occasion.
Well, thank you so much, uh, Tom. Uh, so, you know, we're now uh, going to have a more open discussion. Um, and we'll, uh, you know, I'll collect questions from the floor, I mean, from the audience. So please, if you have any question uh, to, um, to our speakers, uh, put them in the Q&A and I will, um, I will communicate them to, to Kelman and, and uh, Graciela, right? So, uh, so far we have two questions in the, in the Q&A. So I will start with those. Um, I have a first question from uh, Sam Hart. Uh, who uh, um, is a LSC economic history alumni, right? And Sam is asking, uh, to what extent are the world's major central banks more or less independent from their respective governments today than in the past? I think, you know, there is an advanced economy um, answer to that question, but also an emerging market economy uh, answer. So, you know, it would be great to hear um, uh, your perspectives on, on that, um, uh, Carmen, uh, and then uh, Graciela. Let me start with advanced economies. I think de jure central banks remain as independent as they were before the global financial crisis. I think de facto central banks are much, much more constrained on what they can do or what they're willing to do or what is politically feasible. Um, and so I think there has been a loss of de facto uh, central bank independence to react symmetrically to shocks. Let me explain symmetrically. Uh, if there's a need to ease because of an adverse shock, we have seen unprecedented response. First, during the global financial crisis, it was unprecedented peacetime response at that time. And now, superseding that, uh, we've seen an even greater response to the COVID crisis we have seen much more circumspect, limited policy reversal of the 2008-2009 crisis. Um, uh, there is an asymmetry, a, meaning the response to adverse shocks and easing uh, is not matched by uh, a, uh, a similar response when it comes to tightening. And let me highlight some reasons why, but I would note that if you recall my remarks, I did preface them also by saying I did, I, when it came to emerging markets, I was not expecting a Paul Volcker moment uh, response from uh, any of the advanced economy central banks uh, anytime uh, soon. Um, but let, let me, I alluded to some of the constraining factors. Um, constraining the ability of central banks, and again, de facto, not de jure, to tighten, uh, is the fact that uh, private debt, corporate debt is extremely high 
in some cases, in some countries at all time highs, and it's skewed towards lower quality, meaning it's, it's high risk debt, very low quality covenant. So for financial fragility reasons, central banks may be averse to a sudden tightening. Then, of course, there are asset markets. It used to be called the Greenspan put. Then it became the Bernanke put. And now one can just call it the Fed put. Uh, and who wants to be the central bank governor that burst the bubble in the equity market? Um, so so the, the, I think, you know, the potential uh, uh, pricking of the bubble is another constraining factor. Then there's the, the political economy uh, that, Olivia, you were also alluding to. You have now a, a highly indebted government uh, and the issue of raising interest rates and raising debt services, debt servicing costs uh, is not one that would go down well at the political dimension. Um, in some countries, like Switzerland, for example, you even also are constrained, and, and this is not just Switzerland, it applies to Scandinavia, it applies to, to Australia and New Zealand in different degrees. Uh, there is a tendency to go with the herd that if the ECB, the Fed, the BOJ are, are, are maintaining rates low, you're afraid of raising rates. Uh, because of currency appreciation. So fear of floating, or more accurately, what Levi Yayati and, and Sturzenegger called fear of appreciation. Uh, so I'll stop here by saying, uh, de facto, um, I think uh, central banks are much, much more constrained than they have been during the heyday of, of central bank independence. And by the way, central bank independence as a big new movement, so to speak, took hold when uh, public debt in the advanced economies was uh, around its lowest level since the end of World War II. This would be the early 80s. Uh, so let me, let me stop there, and I'm sure Graciela will speak to the uh, EMs. Yeah, thank Yeah, Graciela, it would be nice to have your perspective um, as well, right? After all, um, you know, following the, the COVID-19 pandemic, emerging markets, uh, central banks have for the first time engaged in quantitative easing, even though, you know, it's not comparable in, in size to what, um, to what um, the Fed or the ECB has been doing, right? But how does that affect central bank independence? compared to, 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 to the past? Um, well, uh, in the 1990s, uh, there was a rush in Latin America to have much more independence uh, of central banks. And uh, there was a sharp decline uh, of, uh, of inflation. The Monetary authorities gain some type of autonomy to, um, to uh, now intervene much more heavily uh, amid COVID-19. And suddenly what you have seen, uh, for example, in the case of Chile, 
uh, that uh, money base uh, in 2020 increased about 20% of GDP. So the numbers quite similar uh, to uh, advanced economies. And in general, what you have seen is that these countries with the gaining credibility uh, from the 1990s and early 2000s is that now they are trying to, uh, to use more monetary policy to, uh, to reduce the collapse of the economy. I don't think that they are going to revert nearly soon. Uh, as you know, there are uh, the, the extent of social conflicts in Latin America is uh, quite dramatic. Uh, we have uh, a world uh, that, uh, in which poverty is quite dramatic. So I don't see reverting now. Uh, and although some countries have increased a little bit uh, interest rates, I think that uh, this episode uh, will continue uh, trying to recover the economy. So, uh, yeah, I think that we are going to see a, a little bit more uh, easing uh, in those countries too. Thank you. Thanks, Graciela. We uh, have another question um, for you, uh, which comes from Maria, who is um, another LSE alumni. Um, so Graciela is asking uh, a little bit about um, Brazil in the 1980s, and she's asking um, whether um, you see uh, any um, uh, insight from the Plano Real as a solution to the economic crisis in Brazil uh, in that period, and whether you think something uh, can be done again uh, in sort of a similar extension um, um, to Brazil and other countries in Latin America with similar uh, conditions of higher inflation and increasing interest rates? Um, well, uh, during that period, the, the situation in Brazil was completely different from here because the country was amid uh, hyperinflation and they had to reduce uh, that hyperinflation. Uh, the plans were introduced and inflation was reduced, but even in 1998, 1999, there was a sharp collapse uh, in uh, a, a currency crisis uh, that uh, led to a large uh, depreciation uh, of uh, the real. Um, whether now they are going that there was a a, a very contractionary monetary policy at that time and a fiscal spending decline. I think that uh, now uh, with, um, well, of course, monetary policy is not at the level that we have seen before, uh, but still I think that uh, the, uh, the central bank Anna, is not going to tighten uh, inflation is still um, in the lower uh, double digits. I don't think that they are going to, uh, to tighten uh, quite dramatic right now. Um, it's a real, uh, the economic problem and the distributionary problem in Brazil is quite uh, important. Thanks. 
Thanks. So um, I'm gonna... I, I would note that I have a different take on that, but okay. I, I... Go, go ahead, Carmen. Go ahead, Carmen. <laughs> Look, I, I, I mean, the, they already did the biggest rate hike since 2000, Brazil, um, and and they're they're already pricing in, you know, further rate hikes. I think they're walking a very difficult line because uh, inflation is manifested itself importantly through food price inflation. Food price inflation is even bigger than the headline double digit uh, inflation. This also has very big impacts on social consequences. So I agree with everything Graciela said about the fragility of the recovery and that this is a big concern. But at the same time, I think the, the many central banks uh, are concerned uh, about the inflation slash currency depreciation dimension. Uh, and, and let's not forget that a lot of the inflation, as I said, is, is, is extremely regressive. Uh, you know, big surges in food prices were behind the Arab Spring. So let me let me just stop there. Thanks. So um, I have two questions now, uh, which are related and which are about comparing uh, today's situation with previous pandemics that we have uh, experienced uh, in history. Right. So um, Oliver Volkant, who is a professor um, at the LSE. And uh, Joachim Lise, who is um, um, an alumni and, and, um, and a member of our advisory uh, board, are asking whether there are any parallels we can draw. And more specifically, um, is it possible to draw any conclusion uh, regarding international public finance in connection with the Spanish flu period um, during and, and, and following World War One. Um, so, do you have any thoughts on that uh, parallel with the Spanish flu? Uh, in March of last year, I wrote a project syndicate piece called "This Time Truly Is Different," and it wasn't a pun, or it wasn't. Um, and I, I, I alluded to the. Uh, Spanish flu, uh, the influence of 1918. Um, the year that deaths in the Spanish flu peaked in the U.S. was actually a boom year in terms of GDP. So this was importantly because the point I'm making is that the Spanish influenza was really dominated also by what was going on with World War I. So actually drawing comparisons on the macro side, on the macro side, on the fiscal or on the monetary policy response. It's, it's not, first of all, you know, the big, po the big policy drive um, in not just the U.S., but in the both sides of, of the World War I uh, uh, um, conflict uh, was 
you know, increased production, you know, uh, war drive, um, it, it, it's, it's a sea change from what, what we've seen. Now, there is what I think very important legacies that sadly we will be um, uh, going through. Um, the uh, pandemic, especially, you know, not exclusively, but, but India was ravished by the 2018 pandemic. Uh, the consequence was also very, very big impact on demographics, on birth rates, uh, on, on all kinds of social markers. Uh, we are being, we, at the bank, we're very cognizant that poverty has taken the first spike in 2020 since 1998. More than two decades, poverty, global poverty rates have, have, have increased. And the leg, one of the legacies of the, the, the uh, pandemic of the Spanish influenza was, you know, also uh, setbacks to development. And uh, as I said, that was fairly dramatic in the case of India, but it, it, it was, and, and I am very concerned that those setbacks to the, those reversals, those, those which are hitting education, nutrition, uh, you know, that, 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 is, that is a big legacy. So, but on just to note that I didn't make, I didn't draw more attention to the fiscal monetary debt side because it's impossible to look at 1918, 1919 without really it being dominated by, by what was going on with World War I. Thanks. Thanks. Um, well, I, I also have a question from one of our current master students. Um, who is uh, asking a little bit about um, modern monitoring theory and especially the views expressed by Stephanie Carlton um, uh, recently, right? So, um, you know, of course, when we um, talk about uh, uh, public deficits and inflation issues, that work has been very uh, influential in certain circles. So it would be interesting to hear your thoughts about that, um, that, um, uh, that theory, right? So um, if you have you know, anything to, any thoughts to share about modern monetary theory? Look, I think, you know, this is a question on mo modern monetary theory and, and the issue of inflation. Um, let, me, let me start by sort of offering some, some of my, my thoughts on uh, monetary policy and inflation. Um, during, and I alluded to my, this in my remarks earlier, 2008-2009, uh, during that so-called global financial crisis, even though it wasn't global, it was really about a dozen uh, uh, European economies in the U.S. and so on. Um, the policy response, you know, a lot of central bank easing, um, quantitative easing, 
ballooning of, of monetary base and so on, and yet no inflation on a sustained or a little bit on a temporary, but on a sustained basis, nothing, no, 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 no issues follow. So I think this built up a confidence that certainly you can have very large scale uh, monetary expansion without it having monetary, uh, the monetary expansion having inflation consequences. And the COVID monetary expansion was even greater than, than 2008, 2009. So are we going to have mon modern monetary theory uh, would come out probably uh, more along the lines of uh, inflation from the monetary expansion should not ensue. Uh, but, you know, uh, that's probably an oversimplification. But importantly, one thing we have now that we didn't have then is supply shocks. Uh, 2008, 2009, and its aftermath was dominated by a crash in aggregate demand. We now have also a, a, a big decline, historic decline in 2020 in aggregate demand, but we've also had a variety of supply shocks. This is reflected in transport costs that have soared. It's reflected in shortages of a variety of items. It, 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 there's disruptions of standard supply chains a mismatch between work, where workers want to work and where they are needed. There's all kinds of disruptions associated with COVID globally, not just in one or two countries, but, but really globally. Do not underestimate the impact of supply shocks on inflation. Uh, and central bank policy accommodation uh, in the 70s did think that they could uh, accommodate uh, supply shocks back then. It was a simpler supply shock. It was OPEC. Uh, and uh, the outcome was, was higher inflation. So I, I do not think that we should take the acceleration in inflation lightly and for some time, well before many of the central banks have revised their view, I was arguing that uh, inflation could very well be persistent because of also these important supply side effects. Thanks. Um, you know, this is becoming uh, too interesting and we have many questions in the chat that I will not be able to, to, to communicate. Um, I think we have one minute left. Um, so I would like to use it to ask you a final question. Um, which is a, a more general one uh, about uh, the, the, the usefulness of financial history, right? So, I'm, so my question was, how useful is financial history to your academic world? Uh, look, I think uh, financial history is very important uh, for putting current environment in perspective. No, don't always look for the identical, but perspective is important. I think there is a, a real tendency to think that every time we've rediscovered penicillin. Uh, and so, you know, uh, hopefully, and this is a hopeful statement, 
I think, of financial history awareness and economic history awareness in general uh, helps you reduce the odds that many mistakes of the past will be uh, repeated, um, even in slightly different form. Thanks. Thank you so much. Well, you know, thank you uh, to the, well, thank you uh, the three of you for your uh, fantastic uh, remarks and, um, and presentations. Um, we really enjoyed it. Uh, unfortunately, we have to end it here because, you know, I would have loved to continue the discussion um, um, for another two hours, but, uh, but we need to, to stop here, right? So, uh, you know, thanks uh, to all of you. Thanks to the participants. Uh, thanks to the audience and especially to uh, those uh, students and alumni who, who ask questions here. Um, well, um, so I'm going to end the event now uh, and, um, you know, let's hope that uh, the prospect for public debts will be uh, not too negative. Over the over the coming uh, years, and that we can um, and the, we can use insights uh, from history to to address the policy challenges. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app, and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk/events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.